I want to speak to you about the harvest tonight. Um, as we deal with the harvest, so let me tell you, give you some thoughts here. I think the, it's very easy for us because we live in a peaceful, easy day for us to get drawn into the place where we're just apathetic and everything's fine. You see, nobody in this room expects to die this week from a gunshot. We just don't expect that kind of stuff. You know, we don't expect a bomb to drop through the roof of our home when we're sleeping. Uh, we don't expect to starve. We don't expect any of those things. We live in a very peaceful day. Now, it's not like that for everybody in the world. People that live in Assyria uh, tonight, listen, they don't know what's going to happen. They have no idea what's going to happen. Some of them are grieving uh, relatives this minute. Some of them are looking at situations that are just totally intolerable. People in Afghanistan, the people in Iraq. You know, there are places in the world where it's not quite as comfortable as it is for us. But because it's so comfortable for us, it's easy for us to just get lulled into this sense of false peace. Everything's fine. Everything's happy. And it's going to stay that way. Let me say this to you. It's definitely not going to stay that way. Definitely not. There is one event that's going to happen that's going to transform the world. Uh, But anything can happen at any time. But for us, we need to understand, listen, it's not all like it seems. There are dreadful things that happen every day in our world. And the most dreadful thing of all is for somebody to die in their sin and go to hell. And all the bad things that you could think of happening to somebody, there's nothing Worse than that. Now, we're going to look at the harvest tonight, but the urgency of the harvest is caused by the reality of hell. That's not a thought I like. I'm sitting at home this afternoon studying about it and going through it in my mind. You know, listen, I, I could happily go without preparing for a message like this and preaching a message like this for a long time, but it's real, it's true. I want to ask you tonight to try and bend your minds around it, to try and go with it, to try and understand what the scripture is actually saying, to try and understand the concept of hell the Bible gives us. Because if we don't understand that, we'll never be the witnesses that we ought to be. If we don't understand how awful, how horrible, how unthinkable hell is, we'll never be the witnesses we're supposed to be. You see, we're not just trying to get people into the Jesus way. We're in a desperate, last-ditch attempt to save them from stepping out of this world in their sin and spending eternity in hell. It's that urgent. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for this people. Now would you bless, Lord. Uh, Lord, my lips are not fit to portray the picture of hell. Your Holy Spirit's going to have to do it. Well, blessed Spirit, would you, would you take your word tonight and would you just touch hearts with it? Would you draw us to uh, an understanding that's real, one that you have for us? And bless, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. John chapter 4. Uh, <clears throat> John chapter 4. We'll read uh, quite a portion of Scripture tonight to get the sense of what we're looking at here. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, let me just say to you a word about the uh, Samaritans. The Samaritans were what they call mongrel Christians. And and here's what happened. Uh, The king of Assyria had planted people into uh, the place where the, where the, the, the um, ten tribes had been taken out of, right? He had removed people from different ter- territories all around, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, uh, and from Seraphim, and he had brought them into this country and settled them in it. 
given them land. The idea was, you see, if you wanted to, if you wanted to conquer a land, you had to move the people somewhere else. And by the way, when he moved the Israelites out of it, they got lost. They are now the lost tribes. Right? They're, they're scattered, obviously, around the world, but they're lost. Right? But he moved other people in. Now, the people that came into the land were obviously not Jews. And there was a certain period when the land really had nobody in it, and the lions multiplied in the land. So this new people came into the land, and they were having dreadful trouble with lions. And superstitious pagan people that they were, they decided the reason is because we don't know how to worship uh, the god of this place. So they sent to find out who was the god of this place, and of course they, they found it was Jehovah, and they had a priest sent to them to teach them the ways of the god of Jehovah. Right, so what they did was they learned the ways of the God of Jehovah because they were afraid of the lions. They, but they served their own gods at the same time. So you have this mishmash of people and mishmash of religions and doctrines and all that's here. And, you know, the, the other tribes of Judah, listen, they, they just despised these Samaritans. They didn't want nothing to do with them. They didn't want to be around them at all. They, they, they were just... Awful. They were low-class, mongrel-type people. But the Bible tells us here that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Jesus was not <clears throat> bound by religious boundaries. He came to reach people. He came to reach all. And in his mind, he, he had to go through Samaria. There was a reason. We're going to see the reason why he had to go through Samaria. He had a woman he was going to meet with. He had a city he was going to meet with. And as he always did, he had a lesson he was going to teach his people, his men. Right? So reading on there. Uh, now Jacob's well, verse 6, was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth turn. Now, isn't that amazing? We look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say he was God, and he was God. So we look at him and we say he was God, and yet because he took on human flesh, he knew what it was like to be like you and I. He knew what it was like to be weary. He knew what it was like to be tired. He had walked far, and he was weary. He was tired, and he sat on the well. Um, <clears throat> there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now, <clears throat> she's going to mention it, but that was a... You're kidding. You a Jew? A holy guy? You want me, a Samaritan, to get you, you would, you would dare to drink water that I would touch? <clears throat> and, and, but he's, he's got a plan. He's got a purpose here. Um, <clears throat> For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Too right, they hate them. I, <clears throat> by the way, it was said of the Jews that they hated everybody. They hated the whole world. One of, the, one of the Roman politicians said that about them. They hate the whole world, and they did. They hated everybody. God was their own private property, and outside of that, uh, they, they would have nothing to do with anybody. Uh, verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence hast thou this living water, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said unto him, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And they had a temple built that was similar to the one in Jerusalem. Right? Our fathers worshipped, and ye say Jerusalem is the place. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Powerful truth and thought there. Powerful truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. The Father seeks true worship in spirit and in truth. He seeks worship like that. That's not our topic tonight, so let's uh, move on. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Whoa. And upon this child came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the man, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Right? So she goes down, the, she, she, she leaves him. He tells her about her husbands. He tells her that he is the Messiah. And she leaves him and she goes down to the city and she tells everybody, well, Come see this guy. He, he, listen, he just told me my life story. Is not he the Christ? Is not he the Messiah? And uh, <clears throat> she, she just lands that on them. And then the whole city comes out to see him. Right? <clears throat> In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Uh, <clears throat> Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? I think sometimes the disciples are comical, Right? Because it's very clearly, you know, Jesus is talking on one level and they're talking on another level and they don't get what he's talking about. What is he on about? I mean, who fed him? I mean, he's got to be hungry. We've walked a long way. Uh, he has nothing to eat here. And he's saying he has meat to eat. Well, who gave him the meat? Guys, well, how come we're all walking down to the village down doing, doing the business of trading and so on to get the, get the meat? And he's already had dinner. He's already had a sandwich of some kind. Uh, <clears throat> He said, I meet to eat that you know not of. There, sorry, verse 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, difference here between Jesus and the disciples and the difference here between Jesus and us. My meat, my sustenance, is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, there's a great picture there because <clears throat> we've eaten several times today. That's possible there's somebody here who's fasting, but for most of us, we've eaten several times already today. You know, we got up and we had some breakfast, maybe, and then we went home after church and we had some lunch, and maybe we had a snack before we came out again, just to, just to help us get through the evening service, you know, without, <clears throat> without starving. <laughs> and when we go home, we, we'll have something else to eat, and, and you know, <clears throat> it's, eating is, is, is an enormous part of life. You know, it's time-consuming, but it's kind of fun. We kind of like eating. We have lots of food around us, and we like eating, uh, and it's not a problem for us. And, 
You know, but Jesus says, my meat, the thing that drives my life is not food. The thing that drives my life is to do my Father's will. The thing that is most important to me in life is not feeding myself. It's not meeting my own needs. It's not taking care of me. The thing that drives me is doing my Father's will. Now, that's the key to the whole missionary problem. If we get to the place where our meat is to do his will, we don't have a problem witnessing. You won't be able to stop us witnessing. You won't be able to get us to quit witnessing. The problem for us is that, our, like the disciples, our meat is not to do his will. Our meat is to go and get food and go about the daily things, and, and we get caught up in it completely. So now he's going to teach them. Now he's going to teach them. He's going to, he's going to give them a lesson. He's the master teacher. There's, there's, they talk about a concept called teaching in the milieu, teaching right at the moment when the lesson is appropriate and needed and the question has been asked so that the people are open to receiving the answer. And Jesus was the master of it. He created the moment and then he would use the moment to teach them. Right? That's, that's what a good teacher does and Jesus was the master, right? <clears throat> so now he's got them to the place where they're... You know, they've been off, they've got the food, he's talking to a Samaritan woman, he says he's uh, got meat to eat that they know not of, they don't understand that, he says his meat is to do his father's will. So now he's got them to the place where there's a difference between him and them, and now he's going to exploit it by showing them. And remember this, that he has an object lesson right standing there beside him. His meat was to do his father's will. In this case, it was to reach this Samaritan woman and really reach the town because he's going to stay there and there are many people are going to be reached in this town. Right? So his meat was to do his father's will. And now he's got the object lesson of all the people of this uh, town. They're, they're coming out to see him. So he's able to show them what it's all about. Look, guys, this is what it's about. This is what's supposed to be happening, all right? So here's our lesson. Say not ye there yet four months, and then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Here they are. They're going through Samaria. They're, listen, you know, he's, he's, he's fixed on it. He's going to do it. There's nothing we can do to stop him. Let's go through Samaria. It's lunchtime. We need food. We're going to have to go and deal with these people and buy some food. Let's get the food. Get a drink of water. Get out of here as quickly as possible. We don't want to hang around here. This is Samaria. These people will contaminate us. Let's just keep moving. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Lift up your eyes. Look, look, look around you. The work is here. The work is actually here. The work is here in these people. Um, For they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their rest. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, to the amazement, I'm sure, of his disciples, to the amazement of them. But he abode there, and many people were reached, right? Now, um, first of all, he says that the harvest is urgent. Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Typically, you know, because we live in this nice, peaceful age, and because everything goes along like it's always gone along, we say, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. 
We'll get to the harvest. Manana, tomorrow. Some other time we'll get to the harvest. But the harvest is urgent. The harvest is now. Don't say there's four months and then comes the harvest, he said. He said the harvest is now. Look at them. They're ready to hear right now. Let's not wait until we get to where we're going so that we can have a harvest. Let's recognize there's a harvest now. Now, why is the harvest urgent? Because people are dying in their sin and going to hell. At the rate of 108 a minute. That's a lot of people. 108 people per minute will die. Well, while we're speaking here, you know, uh, during our service here, let me give you, I worked out these figures. Uh, 6,480 people will pass into eternity. Now, obviously, some of them will be believers, but you know, the vast majority of them won't be believers. They won't know. So, for them, the time's gone. Time's up. There's no other time to reach them. They're going to be dead by the time we're finished the service. Now, I know you're going to say, well, look, I can't reach them all. They're all scattered all over the world. How could I reach them? But, but let me ask you this. If there were droves of people heading towards a cliff and all falling off the edge of it, right? Would you just wring your hand and say, there's too many of them, I can't stop them? Or would you try and grab somebody? Wouldn't you try and grab as many people as you could and pull them back from the edge of the cliff and say, listen, no, no, don't go down there. Now, you wouldn't get them all. But you try and grab somebody. And when it comes to reaching souls with the gospel, listen, they're dying at a rate and going into hell. We need to try and catch somebody. We need to try and save somebody. We need to do what we can. You know, if you let somebody die when it's in your power to, uh, to save them, you can be accused of homicide by neglect. In other words, you come along and somebody is bleeding on the ground and they're obviously in trouble and you say, yes, serves them right, and you walk on and you don't do anything about it. You know, I'm not sure legally, although I think there is a legal case to be made there, but certainly morally, you would be guilty. You know, you could have dialed 999 and gotten them an ambulance and they could have been taken care of. And you didn't, therefore, you're implicated in their death. Now, when it comes to saving souls... We have the duty to actually do something. Now, let me talk with you a little bit about hell now for a few minutes. And go with me on it. Let your mind actually open your mind up and take it in. Because instantly it's horrible, it's dark, it's terrible. You want to close your mind down. You want to coast, I can't cope with that. So you want to close. Go with me on it, right? I'm going to read you something. Most of what I'm reading here, Jonathan Edwards wrote, right? Now, Jonathan Edwards saw a great revival. And one of the messages he preached was, and it was a powerful message, it was sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he preached to a people who were complacent in their goodness. They were church people, but they weren't saved. And they say he read the message with a candle. Candle in one hand and the script in another hand, and he read it. And they say that such a conviction fell upon the church that people clung to the pillars to stop themselves from sliding into hell. People actually held on to pillars because it became that real. Revival will make hell that real. In revival times, God gets real and hell gets real. It's real all the time. But we just don't sense it as being real. So let me read you some of what he says, right? You've often seen a spider or some other noisome insect when thrown into the midst of a fierce fire 
and have observed how immediately it yields to the forces of the flames. There's no long struggle, no fighting against the fire, no strength exerted to oppose the heat or to fly from it, but it immediately stretches forth and yields, and the fire takes possession of it, and, once it be, and at once it becomes full of fire. And what he's talking about there is that somebody in fire has no strength to oppose it. There's no hard men in hell. There's no tough people in hell. Once you go into the flames, you yield to it. Because it's powerful. We know fire to be powerful. Hell is also described as a place of darkness. The Lord tells us of the guest without wedding clothes who was cast into outer darkness. Jude writes that those in hell for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Christopher Love says in his work, Hell's Terrors, darkness is terrible and men are more apt to fear in the dark than light. Hell is therefore set forth in so terrible an expression to make the hearts of men tremble, not only darkness, but the blackness of darkness. You know, there are places in this world where you can go and there's the blackness of darkness. Now, what we consider dark is not normally dark. Right? you got the moon, you got reflected light from the streets, you got all kinds of things that you know, listen, you can see. In black darkness, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's impossible. When you take all the light out of the situation, there has to be light reflecting off it for you to see it. That's how your eyes work. When, when, when it's black darkness, you can't see it. It's terrifying. Because just the darkness alone is terrifying. You know, we fear more in the dark than we do in the day. You remember, you, you, you remember as a child, you, you, you lie awake at night fearing all kinds of things from the shadows. And then blessed sunshine would come up and dispel the darkness and you'd be safe again. Nothing changed. It was just the darkness that changed. Hell is a place of fire. Hell is a place of darkness. Hell is compared to Tophet in Isaiah 30, 33. Tophet was the place where the idolatrous Jews sacrificed their children to the heathen god Molech by casting them into the fire. Day and night shrieks and howls were heard in that place as day and night shrieks, howls, and wailing are heard in hell. Now, listen. Our pain is distressing to us. So is the pain of others. You ever in a place where you heard other people in pain? It's very uncomfortable. You want to run from it. You want to get away from it. You don't want to be there. Because it's distressing to us when somebody's in pain and we can do nothing about it. Now, hell is filled with pain. The people who are there are all in pain. It's a horrible place. Look at Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, verse 1. Now, you've got a red-letter Bible. Most of this is in red. Why is it, why is it in red? It's the words of Jesus. This is Jesus. This is a, <clears throat> a lesson Jesus spoke, right? <clears throat> it's often called a parable, but it's not a parable because people are named in it. I mean, it's an actual account. Um, <clears throat> I read somewhere that you know, Lazarus is named 
because he's okay, but the rich man is not named. And the reason he's not named is because some of his family would have read it. And it was too hard for them to take. Verse 1. And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused of him uh, that he had wasted his goods. Sorry. Um, uh, Verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass... The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, right? So they, they both lived totally different lives, right? We're not talking, one was not saved because he was poor and, and one was not lost because he was rich. That's not the issue here, right? <clears throat> We're just being told they had totally different lives. This rich man had a lovely life. Everything went well for him. Everything was good for him. He was kind of like us. He kind of lived a good life, a nice life, uh, a full life and a happy life. But obviously he had no time for God. He never got right with God. Lazarus, on the other hand, uh, had a terrible life. He was a beggar. He was poverty stricken. And obviously we're not told the detail of it, but obviously he called out to God at some point. Obviously Lazarus came to God at some point, right? And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Right? So he's okay. He goes from his hard life to Abraham's bosom. The rich man is the one we're focused on, though. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Right? Now, catch this thought. In, te- in hell he lift up his eyes. He was aware and conscious of where he was. All right? It, it, it was not annihilation. He was actually aware of where he was, and he was in torments. Right? He was tormented. This wasn't fun. This was, this was horrible. He was on, in torments. Uh, <clears throat> and he see the face of Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Right? Now, imagine when you're so thirsty that you desperately want to drink. It's pretty consuming, isn't it? Now, we rarely understand that kind of thirst. The guys will understand it from playing football, right? You play football, you run them down like you're a teenager for, for whatever amount of time, and after a while you get so thirsty uh, that you desperately need a drink. Right? Now, it's bad to be thirsty, but this is Ireland. Getting a drink's not hard. You know, we're surrounded by water. We're deluged by water. You know, uh, Hannah asked me on the way down what, what, what the weather was going to be like on Tuesday, and I uh, on Tuesday, and I said just off the top of my head, there's a chance of rain. All right now, why did I say that? Because it's Ireland. There is a chance of rain, <laughs> regardless of what the weather forecast says. We got plenty of water. But imagine if you couldn't actually satisfy that thirst. Imagine if that thirst came to stay. And to grow. See, this man was thirsty. He wants Lazarus, uh, he wants Abraham to send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and touch his tongue with it. And that's at least 2,000 years ago. And today, his thirst is still not satisfied. I can't imagine that, just that by itself, I just can't imagine that. 
And, and you know what? There's no hope that his thirst will ever be satisfied. Ever. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing it's a place of fire. We're seeing <clears throat> it's a place of darkness. We're seeing it's a place of anguish all around us. We're seeing it's a place where people are conscious. And they have longings and needs. Just like we do in this world. The only difference is they can't be satisfied. That's not pretty grim. Let's continue on. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Right? So he's no, there's no way, sorry, it's not possible. Now, why don't you see what the guy says? Then, then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, <clears throat> That's harsh thought there. The reality is that if people won't listen to the word in 2013, even if somebody was sent to the dead for them, from the dead to them, they still wouldn't hear. But notice this man is in such dire straits that he wants his brothers to hear. Now, you know what? There are people in this room that have brothers that have never heard. There are people in this room that are not as Christian as this rich man that's in hell. There are people in this room that have others that are desperately in need. And oftentimes, the the reason we won't speak is simply this. They laugh at me. That's entirely likely. It's entirely likely that they laugh at you. But you know what? What's a little laughing at you? What's a little spit in your face? If you could speak to them now and by God's grace prevent somebody from going to hell, it'd be worth it. Hell is horrible. Um, Back to our reading here, it says, Nor will they ever be able to find anything to relieve them in hell. They will never find any resting place, any secret corner which shall be cooler than the rest, where they may have a little respite, a little abatement of the extremity of their torment. They will be able to, they will not, they never will be able to find any cooling stream or fountain in any part of that world of torment. No, nor so much as a drop of water to cool their tongues. They will find no company to give them any comfort or to do them the least good. They will find no place where they can remain and rest and take breath for one minute. For they will be tormented with fire and brimstone and they have no rest day or night forever and ever. Listen, that's a horrible picture. And that's the reality of hell. By the way, that's what Christians have always believed about hell. There's a softening of it and there's, a, there's an effort to soften it because it's very harsh. And we live in a very soft age. But that's what the Bible says about hell. The eternity of hell, the most terrifying aspect of hell is its length, length or duration. Hell is forever and ever. 
we can't conceive of forever and ever, can we? We just can't. That, that, that one just doesn't, doesn't sit for us. Uh, Christ describing the great day of judgment tells of the separation of the wicked and the righteous using these words. And these will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Now the word eternal in both those phrases is the same word. How long is heaven for? Do you expect to live in heaven, you know, for a few million years and then it's over? You expect to live in heaven forever and ever and ever. It's endless. It'll never stop. You expect that. Listen, that's what the Bible leads you to, leads you to believe. That's the same word that the Bible uses about hell. Eternal punishment. Then it's eternal, that it, that it never stops. See, <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon said this. In hell there will be different degrees of torment. Sorry. <clears throat> Uh, in hell there will be different degrees of torment appointed to men, as indicated by a number of scriptures. Luke twelve forty seven through 48 says, And the slave who knew his master's will and, and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. Christ says in Matthew 11, verse 24, Nevertheless I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This, the verses in Matthew indicate that this people in Capernaum will receive a greater punishment on Judgment Day than those who had lived in Sodom. Now, why? Because you know what? Those people in Capernaum saw Jesus do great miracles. They saw him do great things. They knew who he was and rejected him. You know what? <clears throat> Hell is going to be a horrible place for everybody. But for people that have heard and rejected, it's going to be worse than any thought you could have. And there are degrees of punishment in hell. It's not one shoe size fits all. But there are worse punishments and there are easier punishments in hell. Now, easier is probably not the right word because it's always hell. But there's worse. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, Jesus said to Judas Iscariot, he said, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. What was he saying to Judas? Judas, what you're going to do You'd be better off if you'd never been born. Don't do it, Judas. What you're about to do is going to make it so that your eternity is going to be so horrible, it'd be better that you had never been born. And Judas sold him, and Judas went out and, and, and realized it was a bad deal, and he went back and threw the money at them, and he went out and hanged himself and immediately entered into torment and has been there ever since and will be there. Do you know the people in hell now agree with Jesus? Judas agrees with Jesus. It would have been better if I'd never been born. It would have been better had I never, ever, opened my eyes on planet Earth. Nobody in hell doubts that statement. Every day that sinners continue to live and breathe here on earth without repenting, they are adding to their torments in hell. Romans 2 verse 5 tells us, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When somebody is unsaved and they refuse to get saved, what they do is they continue to store up wrath for themselves. It's getting worse. You know, it's heartbreaking to watch people get to the end of their lives and look at their lives and think, listen, it's been so hard, I'll be glad when it's over. And to realize, yeah, their suffering hasn't begun. 
the happiest days they've ever known will be spent upon this earth, as tough as they've been. And then they go into eternity, and it's forever and ever. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this, right? In hell, there's no hope. They have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell, there is written forever. In the fires, there there blaze out the words forever. Above their heads, they read forever. Their eyes are galled and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever. Oh, if I could tell you tonight that hell would one day be burned out and that those who were lost might be saved, there would be a jubilee in hell at the very thought of it, but it cannot be. It is forever. They are cast into outer darkness. Look, these are disturbing facts. Disturbing truth. Your mind and my mind wants to go somewhere else other than, other than to those truths. But, but let's, let's, let's put reality to it. Your family that are not saved, if they die without Christ, are going there. Now, you know, we, we can say, well, nothing I can do about it. We can kind of palm ourselves off on it. We can, you know, we can get all kinds of mechanisms and ways we have of just avoiding it. But that's the truth. And one day that reality has to be faced. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, that's what you're facing. If you were to be killed in an accident on the way home and you're not saved, that's what you're doing. You're going to hell. It's urgent. It's urgent for them to get saved, and it's urgent for us to witness to them. Jesus said, don't say, yet four months and then come at the harvest. Let me give you some figures that will help you with that. 108 people a minute pass out of this world. 6,480 per hour. 155,000 per day. 1 million per week. 5 million per month. 20 million people in four months. 20 million people, five times the population of the Republic of Ireland dies every four months. It's urgent. It's now. If we could see it, we'd stop talking about when we get around to it. And we'd be around to it. What's the value of a soul? What's the value of one life saved from hell? What's, what's that worth? See, we're coming into our missions conference week. This is what we're talking about. Now, we can't stop 20 million people from dying in their sins and going to hell. But I think you could probably stop one, couldn't you? I think there's probably someone that would listen to you. I think there's somebody you could make a phone call to. Somebody you could send a track to. Somebody you could go and sit down with and say, hey, listen, I've got to tell you something here. Now, are you going to sound weird to them? Well, of course you're going to sound weird. They're jogging along in their folly just like you were, just like I was. And all of a sudden, this lunatic from another planet comes with the gospel and tells them if they don't receive it, they're going to hell. And that makes a lot of us shy away from it. But the reality is, if they don't hear, they're going to end up in hell. That's unthinkable. 
That's totally unthinkable. We have to do what we can. We have to do what we can. It's urgent. It's now. We can't wait. We can't look to some other time. Don't say there's yet four months. Don't say, you know what, <clears throat> when I finish my education. Don't say when I get over this problem. Don't say <clears throat> when this issue is fixed. Don't say when I learn more. Tell them. Warn them. Warn them to flee the wrath to come. It's urgent. It's now. You see, for those 20 million people, four months is too late. They won't be here. They won't be here to hear. You won't be able to tell them then. And we live our comfortable lives in our oh-so-comfortable world with our plans for now and our plans for next month and next year. And when we get things together the way we want them, then we'll be about the gospel. But they won't be here. They'll be gone. Their chance, their opportunity will be over. The Bible says, how shall they hear without a preacher? There has to be a preacher. There has to be somebody who will tell them. There's a time when the crop is ripe for harvest and it's a matter of urgency. Next month is June. You get a dry patch in June. Any farmer that's got hay in the fields out there, he'll be out night and day. The, The barley harvest and the wheat harvest, the same thing. When it comes to the place where they're ripe, listen, he wants them. He wants it in. He wants it out of those fields where it can be damaged and he wants it in his shed as quickly as possible. You drive through Wexford uh, during, <clears throat> during those months and you know, you'll see late at night when it's gotten dark, at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock at night, there's, there's machines in the fields working. Because it's urgent. Get it in now. Don't wait. It might be gone if you wait. That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, listen, it's urgent. <clears throat> it's urgent. There needs to be. <clears throat> And outreach with the gospel now. Don't, don't let's wait. Don't let's put it off. Don't let's think of another day. They don't have another day. For many of them, today is the only day. Look what else he says to them. He says in John chapter 4. Say not ye there yet four months and then come with the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. What is, are you focused on right now? What is it that's before your eyes? What are you focused on? What are you looking on right now? What are, you, what are you seeing right now? What's engrossing your attention right now? He says, lift up your eyes from that. In the context of the disciples, it's, listen, here you go, guys, you're focused on food. You're focused on the run of the mill, everyday life. He says, lift up your eyes. Look at all these people coming. And a great multitude believed on him. Because it was urgent, it was now, and they heard. (laughs) Lift up your eyes from religious prejudice. The Jews consider the Samaritans to be the worst of all people. Listen, look, people can get reached with the gospel wherever they are, spiritually. They really can. It doesn't matter where they are. They can get reached. Lift up your eyes from food, the daily grind. The guys were all focused on food and lunch and everything else. And, and he says, no, 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 that's, that's not the most important thing. Uh, lift up your eyes from your own plans. He had three years to build an empire that would span the world. But he had a meeting with a woman at a well in Samaria. And he had to go there. 
it was that important. And it wasn't a numbers game. It was, there was a woman that was ready to hear. There was a harvest that was ready to be had. And he must needs go through Samaria. He had to go there. Lift up your eyes. Don't let the things around you and the work you're doing and all the rest that's happening right now, don't let it <clears throat> consume everything of you. Lift up your eyes. Oh, listen, go somewhere and sit and watch them. Go, go to the square someday and sit in that center place. You know, go get yourself a cup of coffee and sit in the center place and look down at them. Look at that hopeless people scurrying around, going hither and yon. Not knowing where they're going or what they're doing, just trying to do the next thing. Just trying to keep body and soul together, not realizing there's a cliff. And when they fall over it, it's forever and ever. Go watch them someday. I'll tell you what it'll do it'll make you pray. It'll make you cry out to God to move in hearts and lives. It'll make you start crying out for revival. It'll make you start crying out for a move of the Spirit of God. Go watch them. Go look at them. It's real. Lift up your eyes. See where they're at. See, look under the fields. The field is the world of lost men. Look at them. They're, they're, they're on their way to hell. They're blind. They're snared. They're insensitive to all things spiritual. Just like you and I were. Remember the days? Remember the days before somebody opened up the gospel to you? Remember the days when you thought these people are weird. But you know what? Somebody took the time to open the word to you. Somebody took the time to show you Jesus. Somebody took the time to show you the way out of hell. And you may not be the greatest Christian in the world, but you know what? You're saved. You're on your way to heaven tonight. And they're just like you are. Blind. Insensitive. Maybe mocking. But listen, they're desperately in need of the gospel. They have no one to tell them. How can they hear without a preacher? <clears throat> you see, we have to get our eyes off our own things if we're really going to see the needs of the lost. We have to get our eyes off of the things that consume us in order to see the lost. You know, it's so easy with the work around me to get consumed in the work and forget about souls. So easy to do. But the work is souls. That's what it is. You say, well, even when they get saved, they don't come to church. Look, I'd like them to come to church as much as you would, but you know what? If they're saved, that's huge. That's ultimately it. But if we don't go out and preach them, how are they going to get saved? Think they're all going to come to church on Sunday night? They're not. That's that weird little place on the main road. And all those other weird little places around. That they have all kinds of, you know, <clears throat> weird ideas about. What would happen to you if you went in there? It's not a joke. The enemy puts, puts them in their mind. Puts thoughts that will keep them away. <clears throat> See, they're white. Already unto harvest. Sweet or barley turns white or golden when it's ready to be harvested. Jesus says the fields are white now. There are souls ready to be saved this week. 
There are souls in Dublin ready to be saved this week. There are souls in Tallah ready to be saved this week. But we're so busy doing everything else, we're likely to miss it. We can get so busy having our missions conference that we forget about souls for a while because we're really busy. Listen, we need to lift up our eyes. There are people who will come if we invite them. There are people out there, and if you said, why don't you come along to our church and explain to them what what you're bringing them for? There are people who would come. There are people who would come and they would hear and they would be saved. And who knows what God would do at one of those lives. But if we don't invite them, if we don't bring them to the Savior, if we don't get them under the Word, how shall they hear without a preacher? There are people in this world for whom you are the only preacher they're ever going to meet. You may say, listen, I'm a sorry preacher. That doesn't matter. You're the only one there is. They're dying in their sin and they're going to hell and you're the only one that they're ever going to hear from. And because they know you, they listen to you more than they listen to anybody else in the world. You've got to speak to them. You've got to talk to them. You see, we have a great commission given by the one and only great God who's to his great army to accomplish the greatest good, let us not fall short. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then come of the harvest. Lift up your eyes and look unto the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. I'm talking to you. Not to the whole church. To you. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do In the last week of May, in the year 2013, to reach somebody with the gospel. We talked about being stewards of money this morning. And I think that's really important. But what about being a steward of the gospel? What about actually going out there and telling people about Jesus? What about putting tracts in your pocket, in your purse, wherever, and saying, Lord, help me. I'm going to pass them out. I'm going to talk to people this week. What about this week? What about this week saying, listen, I'm not waiting for four months. I'm not waiting for a week. I'm not waiting for a day. I'm going to start doing it right now. I'm going to start telling people about Jesus right now because that's the need of the hour. That's the important thing. That's the one that matters. See, they don't have four months. In four months, 20 million of them will be dead. In four months, someone you know could be dead. Someone you were supposed to bring the gospel to. Preach it. Preach it because he told you. And preach it because it works. They can receive it or they can reject it. That's up to them. But it works. They'll receive it, it'll work. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, listen. It's the simplest, sweetest thing in the world. Twenty odd years ago, twenty-five years ago, whatever, I knelt by my bed around in Glen Carrig on the Fairhouse Road. And I said, Oh Jesus, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. And I knew I did. 
wasn't because I was so wicked and so horrible and so awful, but it was because the Holy Spirit had shown me a total lie that day. You see, a lion's not big, it is with God. And that showed me all the rest that was there in my life too. And I knelt by my bed because somebody had confronted me with the gospel. I asked Jesus Christ to save me and I knelt down a sinner on my way to hell and I stood up a child of God on my way to heaven. And it's never changed. And it never will. Because that's the gospel. Jesus died to pay the price for your sins. And if you will believe him, if you will trust in him, he will save you and you will know you're going to heaven. Don't miss it. Don't miss what God has. If you're here tonight, you're not saved. Listen, tonight needs to be your night. Let's all stand to our feet quietly. Father in heaven, we come to you tonight, and Lord, <clears throat> these are hard words about hell. And oh, Lord, I confess to you, Lord, that my mind goes there, looks at them, takes it in, and then flees. Or it's too hard, it's too stark, it's too painful, it's too horrible. But Lord, it's real. And Lord, the needs of people are real. Blessed Spirit of the living God, would you put your heart in us? that we might be the witnesses you want us to be, that we might speak forth your words in this week and tell people about Jesus. We heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me just ask you two questions. First of all, will you say tonight, Lord, I'll do it. This week I will do something. This week I will follow you in it. This week I will be a witness. Would you lift your hand? Amen. Amen. See those hands. Are there others? This week I will be a witness. All right, you can put them down. One other question. You're here tonight. You don't know Jesus as your Savior. We're talking about hell, and the Spirit of God is bearing witness and telling you, listen, that's you. But tonight you would say, I don't want that. I want to go to heaven. Would would you have somebody show me how I can go to heaven? Would you lift your hand? The Spirit of God has shown you that that's you, and you, you want to be saved. You want someone to tell you how you can be saved. Would you lift your hand? Anybody at all in the room tonight? Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for working in hearts and lives. Now, Lord, would you bless in this time. Lord, in this time of invitation, Lord, move in hearts and lives, draw us to you, Lord. And Lord, just put a burden in our hearts to be the witnesses that we ought to be. Oh, Lord, I pray, Lord, would you do the work in Jesus' name. Amen. As the piano plays and God is dealing with you and you want to do business with him, step out of your seat and come and kneel and do business with him and talk to him about it. His is the power. You can't do it, but he can do it in you. As the piano plays and God is dealing with you, you come and you ask him to do that work in you to make you the witness you need to be.